The scripture reading this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He has been stealing, must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful to for building others up according to their needs, that they may benefit from those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The word of the Lord. Good to be here this morning with all of you. And I uh, took a quick trip down to Southern California to see my newest granddaughter. She's a month old, and uh, flew down there Thursday. Flew back last night, and and the answer to your question is yes. I got a haircut. <laughs> my my daughter, her husband are in the Air Force, and so I thought, well, I need a haircut. I'm gonna go over to the base barber shop, and this is what happens. My gracious wife, she said, well, it's not that bad. <laughs> Give it a week. <laughs> right? That's what they always say about the difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut. Two weeks. <laughs> it grows out. So we're talking about uh, living from above. The great line from the book of Colossians, Paul writes to them and says, set your minds on things above where Christ is, set your hearts on things above. So these few weeks, January, February, we're looking at some of these ideas of how we might live from above. And so we turn to Ephesians 4 today. Living above bitterness. It reminds me that we, last fall we, were, um, we took this trip to New York City, many of you know, and we landed at LaGuardia Airport and that reminded me of a story about Mayor LaGuardia. He was the mayor of New York City back in the 30s and all through uh, World War II, the early 40s. And he was quite a character. They actually called him uh, the Little Flower because he only stood about five foot four inches tall and he always apparently had a carnation on his lapel. So they called him the Little Flower. And those were hard times in our nation. Um, stories about him where he, he would often ride around the city on city fire trucks and, you know, just to kind of greet people, kind of raise their spirits. He would take uh, entire orphanages to the Yankee games, down to Yankee Stadium, and, you know, 
buy tickets for all these kids. And when newspapers would often go on strike, the story is that he would go on the radio and then read the, the funny papers to the kids on the radio. Here's a, here's a picture of Mayor LaGuardia. <laughs> well, the story that I wanted to tell is uh, one bitter cold January night, 1935. Mayor LaGuardia showed up at night court. Uh, this court that served one of the poorer areas of the city. He dismissed the judge and took the bench himself that night. And soon there was a, a tattered old woman that was brought before him. And the story that she told LaGuardia was that her daughter's husband had left her. Her daughter was sick and the two children, his, this woman's uh, grandchildren, were starving. And so she stole a loaf of bread from a local grocer. And he refused to drop the charges once he heard her story. So he came to court, too, and he told LaGuardia, hey, it's a bad neighborhood, Your Honor. She's going to be punished. Uh, she has to be punished to teach the people a lesson. The mayor, he sighed and turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. I'm sorry. The law makes no exceptions. It's $10 or 10 days in jail. And even as he was pronouncing the sentence, he was reaching in his pocket, and he pulled out a bill, and he you know, laid it down, $10. And he said, here is the $10 fine, which I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. <laughs> so the newspapers reported this incident the next day. $47.50 were collected, turned over to this bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents contributed by this red-faced grocery store owner. <laughs> 70-some petty criminals that were assembled there that night, people with traffic violations, uh, New York City policemen that were there, each of whom had to put in 50 cents. They all gave the mayor a standing ovation. Don't you love it when grace works? <laughs> when grace shows up unexpectedly. I love that. When the unexpected response suddenly turns another way and it becomes evidence of God's rule in our hearts. One scholar described grace in this way with these words, saying that grace means that in the middle of our struggle, the referee blows the whistle, announces the end of the game. We are declared winners and sent to the showers. It's over for all the huffing and puffing piety. It's finished for all the sweat-soaked straining to secure self-worth. It's the end of all competitive scrambling to get ahead of others in the game. Living from above. The difficult part of living from above where Christ is, is to yield to realize that winning is no longer the highest aim in life, that justice is no longer 
everything. That being in the right is no longer our heart's most fervent longing and desire. You know, Jesus was often telling stories along these same lines. I think Mayor LaGuardia's story would have fit right into one of Jesus' gospel parables. He told stories of the tragedy of those in the right as they came to a sad realization. And maybe the top of the list is the story of the unforgiving servant, which begins with Peter's own questioning about forgiveness. Peter, how many times are we to forgive, Lord? He wanted to know what the rule is. How many times? Seven times, which would have been extravagant. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 77 times, as if to just push the boundaries way beyond whatever could be conceived. And Jesus, as he began to tell the tale of the king who was owed 10,000 bags of gold but forgave it all when the servant pleaded with him, Jesus launches into this story, and we know how it turns out. The servant goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him a much smaller amount. He grabs him and begins to choke him, Jesus tells us, demanding to be paid back. And we're left with this, how do we read that into our own lives? Grace receives, but not extended. Forgiveness at the very core of our souls, one worldview holds, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and that grace, grace can come. But yet we can still be offended and can still live with a a bitter taste in our mouths and resentment in our hearts. How do we reconcile the gospel with our lives? Someone once said, I can't remember who, but I always love this line that everyone thinks forgiveness is a good idea until they have someone to forgive. Right? We love grace. Oh, me? (laughs) It makes a little sense, this parable. Grace given, received, but not extended. So Jesus, he finishes that story and gives the moral at the end. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? It's the conundrum of our hearts. Our great God of love who sets us free from the burden of our own debt releases us to live a new life with a new heart. Jesus seems to pull on Ezekiel's great words, the prophecy of when the Savior would come, that God would give you a new heart. He would put a new and right spirit within us. I will remove from you a heart of stone and put into you a heart of flesh. It was going to be good. We were going to be able to forgive just like God forgives. What happens to us? I saw a billboard this week in Southern California. It was for a personal injury lawyer. Big word, you know, big, broad billboard. And all across it says, no one has the right to hurt you. Oh, wow. Really? That may be true, but it's going to happen. <laughs> You're going to be hurt. 
hurt. Hurt comes. It's where we live. We may want the Justice League to show up, right? <laughs> All those characters show up and bring right. But hurt does come. Lewis Smedes in that classic book, Forgive and Forget, the subtitle is Healing the Hurts We Don't Deserve. He opens with this reality. He says that forgiving is love's remedy to be used when we are hurtfully wronged by a person we trusted to treat us right. I thought that was a good definition. It seems enough at times to conclude the rule of Jesus, that rule, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servants as I have had on you, the rule of Jesus. It seems enough at times to, that maybe it doesn't quite apply to our situation, that our hurt is deeper, it's more profound than maybe someone else's, and we truly do have maybe a right to right the wrong. When there's been a clear breach of trust and relationship and the hurt is undeserved and deep, we can begin to make that assumption and that conclusion that, well, this is beyond. This, this, this has to be dealt with in a different way. Lewis Smedes writes that what follows then can be a carcinoma, growing in our souls, and unchecked it can just do you in. How might we live? above bitterness. The role of anger in our lives is the Apostle Paul's concern here, I think, in Ephesians 4, mostly. It's all about the body of Christ, about unity and community and wholeness and finding a way to love in a community that at times is at each other's throats. <laughs> so this is the chapter about unity in the body. This is where we're urged to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is the chapter where we read that we are to speak the truth in love and to put off the old self and put on the new in Christ. Be made new. The goal seems to be some kind of a, a connectivity and openness with each other, a oneness, community and wholeness. The obstacle, Paul is con very concerned, is how our, our anger, how our bitterness is handled. So I thought we might reflect on those, that short little section in verse 26 and 27, these possible ways to live from above when it comes to bitterness and anger. First of all, Paul gives a bit of a command in verse 26. Literally, what he writes there is, be angry, but... Do not sin. But some have read this and concluded, well, that seems like a command to go ahead and just be angry. <laughs> but it, the Greek is all kind of smushed together there, that whole line. It's more like be careful with your anger. In your anger, do not sin. It's so easily to slide into a hurtful place. Paul seems to be drawing maybe on Psalm 4 where we read, tremble and do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. In peace I will lie down and I will sleep. There seems to be a, an idea that there's a resolution for bitterness in the scriptures. That we are to be counseled to 
be saved from ourselves, from our desire to speak when we're in that full flush of some injustice that has been done. It's a curious line that Paul gives to us here. It's a command about anger. And the word for anger is not an easy one. The word he uses is orge. But the interesting thing is he might have used a different Greek word here, a more acceptable term for anger, another very common Greek word, thumos. So Paul had choices in language. Thumos is used many, many times in the New Testament, mostly just to describe quick flashes of anger, you know, uh, issues that are quickly kind of resolved and subside. So I must admit, uh, thinking about all this, that I had a moment this week of thumos. <laughs> Merging on to 2.15, coming up to the church the other morning, I felt this rise of anger in the guy who just would not move over. <laughs> and so as I nudged my way into my lane, I flashed my lights at him. It was thumos, over and done, quick. Although I started to get a little worried when I got off at 45 South, came along Wasatch there, he was right behind me. <laughs> and then I turned on to, to 39 South to come to the church, and he pulled into the, the left-hand turn lane behind me and started coming down the street with me, and I, I thought enough, okay, better not turn into the church driveway. <laughs> so I turned into Birch instead. Unfortunately, he kept going straight. Well, solve that one, right? <laughs> but I wanted to say, hey, not really angry with you, man. Just a little, yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> just a little thumos. Paul doesn't use that word. He uses a much more intentional word, this orge. And this is the anger that lasts. This is the anger that builds inside and just not resolve that easily. It's the anger that stands up for itself. Usually it's translated as wrath or vengeance. Have you ever noticed that wrath in the Bible is always a delayed action? The wrath of God is to be a, a long process. It's a delayed process. Orge is to be handled carefully, slowly, intentionally. James, in his little letter, you know this line, he says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to orge, slow, slow to anger. Which, to me, what I get out of that is that we are not to give up on people quickly. That we are to give the people time to come around, to understand, to have conversation, to not write people off quickly or demand justice quickly, but to work with them. Speak the truth in love and be in relationship with them. Eugene Peterson rephrases this little section like this. He says, go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. It's so tempting to weaponize our bitterness 
especially when we sense that we have good reason to. And so Paul's words, they, they come to me and hopefully to you as a bit of a comfort in a way because of mostly what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, never be angry. He understands that things happen. People, we do get hurt. And we do have bitterness. It lives, though, right inside of us, alongside of love. We can be enraged with indignation in, in a very painful way with the very same people that we are most passionate about in our lives. Very strange. <laughs> in fact, it's, I think, more common to be bitter towards those we are close to than with those we have no common tie to. And so he writes to the church. This is a church. It's amazing. That if we come to the end of that section, we read, you know, don't be bitter, don't be angry, no brawling. <laughs> and you think, wow, what kind of church was this? <laughs> they have cage matches? You know, Colin McGregor. <laughs> 40 seconds last night, right? Some of you might have seen that. They have ultimate fighting back in the day. <laughs> no brawling. But it seems to be more common to be bitter towards those we are close to than with those we have no common relationship with. Makes it all important then to live from above where Christ is when it comes to handling anger and bitterness around those we care for. Healthy anger motivates us to not seek to destroy the other, but to be careful with one another. Be slow to anger. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, many married couples have gone through premarital counseling. The pastor or the counselor has held that up before them and said, you know, really try to deal with that before you go to bed each night and you know, many couples have, well, some of them haven't slept in years. <laughs> the point, though, is clear that we are not to stay angry, that we are to be slow to anger but quick to forgive. Kind of a different paradox there. You know, in our extended family, there's a situation that just pains us every time we are reminded of it. Christmas letters remind us of this family's ordeal. Some years ago, there was a situation at the church that mom and dad attended with their married son and his wife. And there was some problem about a decision the pastor had made at the church. And the parents, you know, had kind of given the pastor a little room on it, but the, the son and his wife disagreed and thought that there ought to be a a different solution and they were upset with the pastor and so they had to split and it didn't seem like any big deal to the parents but to the, the kids apparently was this young couple just couldn't let it go and they still haven't and it's been years now at least 10 and they have simply cut themselves off from mom and dad now they have children and so they have these grandchildren that they really have not met there's none of those kind of cute Instagram pictures or FaceTime, you know, moments. None of that. No phone calls. 
parents have been notified not to include son and wife in their Christmas letters. They want to be cut out of the family. We don't want to be a part of it, they said. So there's this horrible hole in the family. Parents have lost all contact with their son. And so that sunset clause that Paul gives here is so important when it comes to bitterness. Urging us to speak the truth in love and do it sooner rather than later. There's nothing worse than a festering wound. Frederick Beekner writes about this in his book, Wishful Thinking. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. <laughs> to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at that feast is you. Paul finishes it all up by saying bitterness is really a spiritual issue. To persist in orge is to invite evil to take a take hold in our lives as if to say put a limit on anger do not give the devil a foothold and, and you who are climbers should really understand this what a foothold means as you move yourself up that rock face a foothold gets you to the next level do not give the devil a foothold when it comes to your anger our anger is so hard to handle responsibly, and I know I'm not always very good with it. I can get so defensive. I've had meetings through the years where I know I, I go into those meetings and say, okay, Steve, <laughs> give myself this little pep talk before I get, go in. I said, don't go there. You know you're right, <laughs> but you don't have to be right in this meeting. Don't get started, I'll tell myself. Don't build your case. <laughs> Just listen. Come on, be that non-anxious presence, Steve. You ever have those self-talks when you go to meet with people? Sometimes that little prayer and that little talk works. Sometimes not so much. I get pushed to another foothold. and It's a spiritual battleground as evil lurks, ready to exploit us, ready to provoke us, ready to prompt us. I'm always amazed when I read historical stuff, like you know, John Calvin 500 years ago that said this. Can you believe it? That we feel every day how incurable is the disease of long-continued anger, or at least how difficult it is to cure it. 500 years ago, they were still dealing with that too. Human nature. In a strange way, the hurts that are so hard to handle are at the very same time, however, places of healing and love. Places of opportunity to lead us back into the surprising grace of God. These issues that Paul writes about here, they really speak to the deep, deep parts of our lives. Making us fit for God. Just in, as in Christ God has forgiven you, so you ought to forgive one another. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. 
It's a spiritual effort and battleground. Be rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Be kind and compassionate. As if to say, look to Jesus. What did he have to forgive? There's so much. The whole world had turned against him. We are a complicated people. Reinhold Niebuhr wrote many years ago, he said, there's a labyrinth of motives in every heart, in every action, both good and evil, is the consequence of a complicated debate and tension within the soul. It is complicated. Bitterness arises out of a complex heart that is never truly pure. Just when we think we have something hard to forgive, we realize that perhaps we've already been forgiven by God. We are seldom, rarely are we innocent. It's complicated. And so we pray. We pray often, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Being free of bitterness has everything then to do with realizing the the depth of our own debt and our own need to be forgiven. Don't you love it when grace shows up? When the friend that you thought was lost forever is suddenly back because of what only the Spirit of God can do in a relationship. You know, a few years ago, I got wrapped around it with one of my kids. And against my better judgments, I had, I'd had those talks with myself. You know, don't go there, Steve. Don't say it. So against my better judgment, I said too much. I had been very sensitive. I felt like there had been a, a hurt, an offense. I felt like there was an apology due, a, an explanation to be given, and it ha- wasn't coming. <laughs> I thought, don't. Just go away. Just go away. But it was that orge, and it was just building within, and, and finally it came out. I said a couple of biting things, like a dad thinking, well, I could just say it and fix it. Ever done that? I was wrong. Even though I thought I was right. <laughs> I still think I'm right, <laughs> as a matter of fact. <laughs> But most of all, I worried that I'd lost her, my own dear daughter, one of the most important people in my life. I got back home, and I I sat down, and I wrote this long letter. I told her I was preaching on 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is is love. And I confessed to her my, my fault for saying horrible things, and there's nothing that should ever rise to that level that would destroy destroy or discard a relationship. A month went by, and I hadn't heard anything after I sent that letter, and I was really worried. So there was an opportunity. I got on a plane, and I flew back east to spend a weekend with them. I was afraid I might get enraged again, and so on the plane, I'm having all these self-talks over again. Don't go there, Steve. Be good. Be nice. All that. Whatever it takes. So one evening after the kids were tucked in, we talked. And I tried to say better what I had tried to say before, but didn't. I tried to let her know that she was more important than whatever the issue was that I was bent out of shape about. 
she was good. She was golden. <laughs> After a while, she said, Dad, maybe we ought to just pray about it. So we did. And she said that she loved me, that I was her dad, that I, she would always love me. You know, grace, isn't it amazing when it shows up? It's like a gift from God. I read recently that forgiveness is love's revolution against life's unfairness. Love's revolution. It's cool to start a revolution like that. Martin Luther King Jr., weekend, day, tomorrow. And the line that I always remember every year, I love this Martin Luther King Jr. line. He says, I have decided to stick with love, for hate is too great a burden to bear. Isn't that the truth? Do away with all bitterness, anger, and wrath. Wrangling. (laughs) Love one another. Forgive one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. That's where, where God is. That's where his spirit shows up when we make that kind of an effort. Grace just shows up unexpectedly when the bitter response suddenly turns another way and it becomes evidence of God's rule over our hearts and in our hearts when a heart of stone is suddenly now a heart of flesh and we know that the love of God is real and it's making a person new again. It's as if for the very first time we have a glimpse of of what it means to live from above where Christ is. Amen? Let's join in prayer. Lord, sometimes we hardly know how to interpret the stories you told. The parable of the unforgiving servant we understand the bitterness and the anger, the debt that is owed to us. Lord, give us the courage to come down off our high places, to humble ourselves and find that really we are then exalted. Thank you for Jesus, for the rule of Jesus, that you who have been forgiven much, you ought to also be forgivers lead us into such places this week lead us into conversations especially with those who were close to us that perhaps we're at a distance from today give us a heart of flesh replace our hearts of stone move in and take residence within oh god we pray in jesus name